You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice with the Religica Theo Lab at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. Today I'm speaking with the Reverend Dr. Molly T. Marshall in our continuing theme on theological imagination. In higher education today, we'll be speaking about seminary life, the role of students, and the essential qualities of leadership today. And even though seminary and higher education is complicated, there is a culture of holy hospitality, as Dr. Marshall calls it, that we need to be attentive to. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Marshall, who believes she was put on this earth to love students, to teach theology, to guide spiritual formation, and to challenge patriarchal structures that would hinder women from full acceptance in all forms of ministry. In her history and her life, she's worked as a youth minister, a campus minister, a pastor, a scholar, and as a theologian, all in an effort to seek to dismantle all forms of oppression. She taught for 11 years at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and joined the faculty of the Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, where she served for 25 years, the last 16 as its president. Currently, Dr. Marshall serves as the president of United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. She has published 13 books, most notably Joining the Dance, A Theology of the Spirit. And we'll be talking about the themes of holy possibility, Dr. Marshall's passion, theological education and change, and burnout of clergy. But before we do that, Dr. Marshall, thank you for joining us. It's a joy to be with you, Michael. There's so much I've just said about your story, professional and personal story. Is there anything else that you'd like to add at the moment for the listener? It would be my growing edges. Since moving to the Twin Cities, which is the epicenter of the Black Lives Matter movement, that particular justice issue of dismantling forms of white supremacy is ever before me in our school, as well as the reality of religious pluralism and how we're going to engage that. And so I'm in a place where those particular issues of justice are at the forefront in my thinking and in my work. I really appreciate that because it's one thing for me to introduce you and say, here are some of the positions you've held, but your response in terms of where your focus is now, here are the social issues or challenges that you're naming. And it really brings me to my first question about your passions as a leader. I mean, in terms of your experience from being a youth minister now to all these years as a theological educator and scholar, could you tell us more about your specific passion for graduate theological education, its formation in our lives, training leaders in terms of their vocational aptitudes, and perhaps where that passion begins for you. I grew up in a conservative, if not fundamental, kind of church in northeastern Oklahoma, where men did all the leading and women were silent in the church, Mm -hmm. as the scripture exhorts. Pretty soon, though, I figured out that this wasn't right, and I became a feminist reading the Apostle Paul, not Gloria Steinem. Pretty early, I uh, experienced a calling to ministry, thought that that would be with youth, junior high lock-ins till Jesus comes or something like that, but I knew even before I went to college that I would go to seminary because that's where I could pursue the questions. While in seminary, I realized that there 
was not much encouragement. I went to seminary in the early 70s. This is the first wave of women, really, in theological education, early 70s, feminist movement, all of that. Mm. But I was at a Southern Baptist seminary, a hotbed, feminist outrage. But I began to challenge the systems there Mm. and later suffered (laughs) significantly for that. But I came to the perception, Michael, that it won't get better in the churches for women until it gets better at the seminary. And so my passion for graduate theological education and the good hermeneutical work that would open biblical interpretation to thinking more broadly about the inclusion of women became a deeply held passion for me. Uh, I served in the church after Master of Divinity, and during that time, I saw even more the ways in which women's leadership was suppressed, and so returned to do a PhD. The point was teach students more than what area, but I had excelled in theology, loved theology, thought it to be the heart of the curriculum, and if you're going to make an argument for the propriety of women in all roles of ministry, do it theologically, biblically. And so that's what I pursued. And I decided to go back to where I had done my Master of Divinity, even though I was accepted other places because I thought, okay, the first woman they hire will have their fingerprints on her. And that proved true. So I graduated in December of 83, began to teach. January of 84 was added to the faculty pretty rapidly. I care deeply about vocation Mm -hmm. and not just persons who are going to serve in ecclesial circles, although that matters a great deal. Mm -hmm. I care about people who are going to be ethical leaders Mm -hmm. in whatever tradition or role they move toward. Maybe I can ask you a quick question on that, on vocation, as you're talking about that. Your care for vocation of leaders is not limited to those who are, say, clergy or in the field of religion. I imagine you have, you've had students come through who end up leading in numerous fields. Exactly. You're them to be ethical leaders in those fields, too. Exactly. And we'll get to this more later, I'm sure. But that's how theological education is shifting. And that is a unique role we have to garner the spiritual longings and desire to lead lives of significance with moral imagination. And theological education must equip people in that regard. In your imagination, thinking about the role of of women in leadership positions in the churches, in terms of ordination, surely, but also leading seminaries and leading uh, major centers of theological education, as you look back in the, say, 1983, when you graduated and first started teaching, Would you have imagined that you would see women leading as you are now in these positions or or alternatively, had you hoped for more? I had always hoped that there be a thoroughly egalitarian leadership structure in theological schools. I did not witness that. I never aspired to be a president. For me, the alchemy, the joy has always been in the classroom where you have the close relationship with students, and you teach out of your life as well as out of the texts Mm. for the course. When I took up the mantle of leadership in 2004 at uh, Central Seminary, I saw myself as a 
transitional figure, a bridge to when they could call a younger president. But as it unfolded, I was 54, 55 at the time that I was called to that role. But as it unfolded and I gained traction and learned leadership skills, it led to a 16-year presidency there. And my passion for the transformation that I believe that can occur during theological education broadened from my concern for women. It broadened to how are we equipping persons who have suffered educational disparity, mm-hmm. a person of color. It broadened to a non-discriminatory approach to persons of gender identity other than heteronormativity, mm-hmm. and led that school toward a much more radically inclusive policy that spoke mm-hmm. about gender identity, sexual orientation. And so my my passion for justice has continued to expand over these years mm-hmm. in theological education. I'd like to ask you another kind of follow-up question to this in terms of, I mean, today you're the president of United Theological Seminary. And from this vantage point, I wonder what brings you Joy, I, mean, I think you're already just expressing that in the way you're talking about vocation, but I'd love to know more about that. And also in terms of some of the current challenges, and you've identified, you know, I've, I've wondered, in terms of what's coming up for or on the cutting edge of discernment around theology, acceptance of LGBTQIA persons, the confronting or racial reckoning around white supremacy, I mean, I imagine those are challenge points because there's lots of disagreement. Are you encountering that disagreement as well? And and what other kinds of challenges that are shaping your leadership today? Oh, Michael, those are wonderful questions. What brings me joy is helping create a culture of holy possibility, mm-hmm. of expectancy, of joy, of a welcome, a radical inclusion. When I draw an org chart, think of it as a minerah. I'm at the bottom because my job is to empower good leaders, good faculty, good staff, and ultimately students for flourishing. Because I believe that theological education is a transformative pursuit. It gives me a lot of joy to see what happens between the time a student enters and when they might complete their study. Theological education is fragile. We know that higher education in particular is fragile, but theological education even more so. Those of us who serve in freestanding institutions where denominational support has trickled away, where students cannot bear the full burden of the costs and should not Mm -hmm. because of aggregated educational debt may mean they cannot pursue the vocation that they want as they try to discharge Mm -hmm. educational debt. There's a measure of fragility. Mm -hmm. And so it is a faithful pursuit for one to do, to enter theological education, or to try to find the means whereby one can support Mm -hmm. theological education. And as the church shifts, as the, the graying of the church, the Younger adults, many of whom vote with their feet by walking out, Mm -hmm. theological schools have to be much more attentive to what is going on culturally, while at the same time 
realizing that deep spiritual longings uh, remain. And how do we address, engage those, not with judgment, but with a welcome for exploration? Many of our students at United have been wounded by the church, and they come seeking a kind of a meaningful spiritual pathway. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that leads them more deeply or back toward ecclesial moorings. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they continue to explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they become pretty irrationalistic and pragmatic and uh, collapse transcendence into uh, a pursuit, I think, of a kind of humanist approach or appropriate one of the older pagan traditions, more earth-centered spirituality, which is understandable given the climate crisis in which we live. That's a very long answer, Michael. No, I I greatly appreciate it because it's so nuanced. And I I think the lens you're providing for the listener on that is your remark about the culture of holy possibility. That theological education has that. And I I also value the fact that you you identify that as is taking place in numerous ways vocationally for people. So there's no kind of preconscripted or coerced attempt with students who may be going through a particular degree program, but for very unique reasons. Exactly. Exactly. Some to deconstruct, some to reconstruct, mm-hmm. some to reorient their lives. We talk about essential qualities here, and they can kind of move across uh, theological traditions, people to have moral imagination, people to have empathy, people to cultivate humility as ways of being formed as a mature agent uh, in one's own life. Dr. Marshall, you've mentioned essential qualities. What is one that you're thinking of now that's so important? Uh, Well, humility. Mm -hmm. Uh, Humility is, according to the great desert monastics, the Abbas and the Amas, it is the master, it is the central virtue. It is the capacity to find one's own place in the realms of possibilities. It is acknowledgement of one's gifts. It is not overweening presumption. It is not making oneself the center of the universe. It is, as Pannenberg used to say, a more exocentric orientation that one finds meaning and groundedness in a larger community and holiness outside oneself. Your appeal a moment ago to the moral imagination, which is an important aspect of every vocational walk, I imagine. And I also wonder what your thoughts would be shy of humility. If humility isn't a part of one's vocational walk in this regard, then one's moral imagination is in some way diminished. Exactly. Yeah. And it's very, very difficult I think to cultivate what a moral imagination means in a time of fraying democracy, ebbing cultural imprimatur Mm. of the so-called Judeo-Christian values or ethos, Uh 
To respect the lived religion of others, to me, is an essential part of moral imagination. One cannot step outside an interpretive framework that one has forged, but one can have permeable boundaries in that and begin to be receptive to the perceptions that others carry that can refine and sharpen and interrogate what we carry. In light of these comments, I'm sure you're reading what the Washington Post and and numerous other media outlets have been reporting in the last few months on a phenomenon of clergy leaving positions in their local communities across uh, the United States. We know that the burnout rate is high. A recent statistic identified 38% of those currently serving clergy have considered walking away or stepping away in the past year alone through this pandemic and the culture wars we're experiencing. I imagine you're seeing this as well and have some thoughts about, you know, it's about the future of theological education, but I wonder if what we're experiencing is somewhat like a cultural canary in the coal mine. When religious leaders in local communities are leaving their positions and those are bridging capacities that they're serving in those roles, when they're leaving, those stressors have no other way, let's say, of being mitigated. And it's a loss for the person who's a clergy person. It's a loss for the local community. It's a loss for society. I'm just curious about your comments around this and and what you think we might be able to do to uh, to alleviate this kind of struggle that clearly clergy are having. Well, clearly they're having this struggle. If I might nuance these stats, recently, I believe uh, Dr. Thuma of Hartford kind of uh, nuance this a little bit further. The thinking of stepping away is not actually stepping away. And so the great resignation, as it's called, may be overblown. However, uh, there certainly is a phenomenon going on of burnout. Part of it is how clergy were formed to do pastoral care, preaching, liturgical work, is not as easily translatable into the new technological forms. And as there are aging clergy, some have been resistant to the necessary kind of transposition to new forms of caring for their congregations and simply were not able of making that transition. There's also the financial fragility of having huge footprints of buildings Mm -hmm. and realizing with dwindling congregations, aging donor base, if I can use that language within congregations, sustaining these monuments to earlier generations becomes more of a question of, is this missionally efficacious? Mm. Is this how we really ought to be spending our resources. And that becomes then a call, a clarion call to uh, missional clarity. How are we going to organize who we are? What is ours to do? And how do we situate ourselves within our communities in more constructive ways? Seminaries have got to help clergy a potential clergy, prepare to think about those issues. And there is a community development aspect of being 
a parish leader mm. that often seminaries have not equipped them to do. Mm. And so there are many, many things as the church changes, so must theological education change. As theological education changes, we prepare the kind of leaders who can get social justice on the church's agenda, which is one of the harder things to do, as you know, Michael. And so, yes, a cultural canary in the coal mine, both in the post-Christendom era, as well as the fraught nature of higher education and the demographics. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, the demographics mm-hmm. show a different kind of curve in terms of who is going to college and what does graduate theological education even look like, given the no longer calculus of full-time, lifetime employment Mm -hmm. that could be a possibility 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. In terms of the students in your classrooms and those of your faculty, knowing that it's not a full-time occupation, perhaps, recognizing that there's a hybridity of things they're going to have to do to be a a leader, I imagine certainly is is the case in, in my experience, but I'm interested in yours. I imagine those students also appear uniquely. I mean, it's a kind of the radical royals in some regards. I mean, these are folks who really care about vocational identity, care about theological education and their formation also in communities with others. How do you respond to that? At United, we do not believe there's divide between being a scholar and being an activist Mm -hmm. and being an artist. I mean, actually, we try to pull those all together. Yes, it takes a depth of commitment and also the imagination to understand that a public form of service advocacy, which may be hybridized with a congregation or with a nonprofit or in some sort of a chaplaincy vocation or other forms of public service, may be the trajectory for the majority of our students. And to think about that pretty early on, and to think about the bi-professional identity, many come with significant professional experience, some of which is in higher education, some of which is in event planning, some of it is in marketing, some come with law degrees. They come desiring to make an impact on the social landscape. And so they are exploring ways in which that might occur. What a powerful confluence of qualities in a student body, where on the one hand, they arrive, as you're identifying, with a care, a deep concern for being agents of transformation around social issues in their communities on the one hand. And on the other hand, as you noted earlier, they are reconstructing, deconstructing, reimagining human beings who have a passion for this and recognize that the safety nets of a former generation are not the same ones for them now. That is quite an alchemy, I imagine, in one classroom. Indeed it is. And you bring in other issues of diversity besides Mm -hmm. vocational pathways. Mm -hmm. And, And so we always say we are striving to become the beloved community. We know that there's much to be done to actualize that in terms of the diminishment of microaggressions, the lifting up of 
voices too long silent, mm-hmm. the uh, respect at the great diversity of giftedness that people bring with them. Michael, as a theological educator for a long time, I've always believed that if we tend people well mm-hmm. in a healthy community, they can become healthy leaders who then know how to form further healthy communities. And so the desire of becoming the beloved community never ends with the seminary. It's my desire that students begin to hone the gifts that will allow them to instantiate the practice of the pursuit of beloved community in other settings. One of the reasons I've so enjoyed our conversations over time is you've helped me to see that being a a faculty administrator, being a president with a commitment to teaching and scholarship as you have, requires one to have a bit of what we might say is a realized eschatology. You're somehow in your responses, looking to the past, recognizing from the beginning the role of women in leadership, for instance, where we are presently in the church's kind of communication, working itself out in society, and where we are going in the future, as you just mentioned you know, becoming the beloved community. And I imagine you're always somewhere in that arc between past and future, looking forward for what needs to happen next. And I, I wonder if you could just take a moment, you're already starting this as you're describing the next steps of becoming a beloved community, but what do you see as the kind of germinal or formational role of theological education in the future? What would you like that future to look like? Or what do you find encouraging that's on the horizon that you're inspired by? Well, I'm inspired by Dan Ailshire's work on theological education as formational, which moves beyond simply professional skills. But it's all about who are our students becoming and who are our leaders and faculty becoming in the process in terms of a deeply formed identity. Mm. I'm also very challenged and delighted by Willie Jennings' work after whiteness when he talks about theological education as an exercise in belonging and how we gather up the fragments of our lives. We work in the fragments. We find ways to decenter long-privileged voices so as to think about theology too often as a construct Mm -hmm. that sustains Christian imagination that is deeply flawed because of its racist hermeneutic. Just this past week, Michael, I went to see the, there's a Sistine Chapel uh, kind of exhibit here in Kansas City. And I looked at the ways in which Michelangelo had framed the various scenes Mm. uh, from Genesis. And I saw the ways in which racist ideology permeates and sexist permeates what he's done. Now, the, the drunkenness of Noah, interestingly, Ham is white, and I think uh, Japheth is of darker hue. And I thought, well, there's a little countercultural bit uh, here. But Jennings is right. We have yet to come to grips fully in theological education with the ways in which historically white seminaries have perpetuated Mm -hmm. the structural 
violence and diminution Mm -hmm. of the identity of people of color. So that is very much the challenge every school is facing. And it's not easy work. It's messy work to convert the heart mm-hmm. in ways needed. When we began, you mentioned that you moved into the field of theology and theological education because that's where the questions were. Have you found answers to those questions? And what's the next question you're asking yourself? Let's say I'm finding, I'm finding answers. Well, you talk about realized eschatology. Michael, I think the question always is how to think in a this-worldly prophetic way, Mm -hmm. even though there are apocalyptic incursions Mm -hmm. into how we understand life now. But theology for me has unfolded much more toward a radical immanentalism that does not utterly collapse transcendence, but prizes the moral agency of humanity, disbelieving that God can do the redemptive work without our participation. I've been uh, striking, harping that note for a good while, but I see it even more today that that is divine humility and human dignity to find the interface between those two. Working on a Thessalonian commentary this past year for the belief series where they trust theologians with the Bible. Uh, well, a little, <laughs> a little bit. They have a biblical scholar read after you. But working on that early, a rather apocalyptic text, I see that much more as a call to how we are going to live in this world rather than being swept up out of this world. As many people want to focus on rapture and other things and the return, I see it much more as how we are going to welcome Christ and one another to do the work that we need to do here and now. And so that's that's kind of what is burning on my burner these days. It's essential for all of us to have a moral imagination that's engaged, attentive to societal disequilibriums, injustices that we see in our communities and the ways that we hold a moral responsibility for responding to those. I also hear you saying we don't do that alone. So there's a sense of also a robust imagination for the transcendent and what God is asking us to do together as co-creators and all of this. Well said. I do not collapse transcendence. I always believe God is before us. God is the future pulling us in the direction of transformation. That's why we create a future story that transforms the present. Mm -hmm. If we only look back about which we can do nothing, that does not necessarily transform the present. But if we construct a vision of where we want to go, that then challenges how we work Mm -hmm. in the present. As you know, I'm a scholar of the Holy Spirit, And I do not believe we work unaccompanied ever. Even those who would not confessionally speak of Trinity and the person of the Spirit or the participation of the Spirit in the perichoretic movement of God, Mm -hmm. uh, still, I believe that every human, by virtue of being a spirited creature, is accompanied by 
uh, divine empowerment, even if we don't use the same language for that. I think it is very important to honor religious affections, holy longing, spiritual desire, even if people do not name that in the same way. I think far too often, uh, traditional ecclesial Christians have been condemnatory of the spiritual but not religious segment. Mm. I think we ought to honor it, honor them as persons whose desire for holiness and deep personal meaning has tender value and should not be judged by traditional framing of Christian identity. And so I'm wanting to expand both how we think about ecclesial bodies as well as how we value persons whose religious search moves outside traditional pathways. I've not always thought that way, Michael. Yeah. Growing up a fairly conservative Bible thumper, but I, I value that recently. I did an April Fool's joke at my <laughs> school. I tend to do those. Uh, and I posted something to all the students, faculty, et cetera, that I would be having an intercom system established in the president's <laughs> office so that I might give uplifting biblical and spiritual inspirational messages throughout the day. <laughs> so I, I did it. Obviously, April Fool's. But the best fun of an April Fool's joke is when some people say, what? Would you really? Uh, and, and maybe their worst fears of this former Baptist, now UCC, minister has come to fruition. Uh, yeah. So to learn to receive others as Christ, as the Benedictines would say, is an important part of how we are faithful in these days. I'm Michael Retrice speaking with the Reverend Dr. Molly Marshall, who is the president at United Theological Seminary. Thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.